I think this is a really timely conversation. I think um, we need to be talking about consumerism and to move towards a different way of living. And so I think as Christians, we have a particular responsibility to do that. And so I'm really excited you're looking at this. Um, and I say that as someone who has bought the following things through Amazon in the last eight weeks. I actually went and looked this up. Books for homeschooling, a digital timer, um, a phone charger, a notebook, two poetry books, two films, a jumper, batteries and a battery charger, a glue gun, paper, gardening gloves, coffee filters, composting bags, a jigsaw puzzle and an adapter. So I'm not speaking as somebody who's got this down. I want to do some um, sociological thinking and some theological stuff. You can see that I ran out of ideas when it came to um, naming part three, but it begins to get a bit more practical there. And then just to say, what I'm not doing is critiquing, like buying things, because I know we all need to buy things. What I do want to talk about is um, the overall kind of economic system that we have and that we live within. So um, part one I've called Don Draper, Desire and Getting Out of Egypt. I want to start by um, telling you a bit of the story of how we came to have this word consumerism, this idea. And um, this is a very short version of a long and complicated story, partly because of time, but also because I don't really know the other long, complicated story. Um, but hopefully you'll forgive me for telling it um, quite like this. And I know it will be familiar to you as well, but I think it's important to um, understand and put into context where consumerism has come from. Because if we know that this is not how it always was, we're more likely to believe that this is not how it always has to be. So... The 18th and 19th centuries in Western democracies like our own in particular were a time of rapid technological innovation and that made it possible to produce stuff, goods, on a scale that had never been seen before. So you could produce steel products in a factory in Birmingham and they could be sold in London or they could be exported to Europe and we've got industry that then floods the market with goods. And as the scale of production increases, so does um, economic and social policy that makes it possible for people to buy more things. Because once most people's basic physical needs are met, which increasingly they are, there is choice over what to spend the surplus on. In short, stuff becomes cheaper and we become wealthier. So if you go shopping, there is more than you could ever need. There is choice. And when you have multiple versions of the same product, advertisers have to work much harder to persuade you to buy something. We can't understand consumerism without understanding advertising. The two are like this. In the early days, marketing was about persuading you that one project, sorry, one product was um, objectively better than another. So these shoes, you should buy these ones because they're the finest leather, they're hand stitched, they've got thick soles, they'll last over time. Um, but over time, marketing shifted to sell um, not stuff, but dreams, because eventually you can't persuade people to keep buying things on the basis of like this chair being better than that chair, um, because everyone's got what they need. Uh, there are loads of other really well-made chairs out there. So instead, you've got to take the chair and you place it in front of some huge windows that are half open with the like linen curtains blowing in the breeze, looking out over a French vineyard. And on the table next to the chair, there might be like a freshly made pot of coffee and a book and, a, and an artfully thrown blanket. And because we want that life, we want that chair, which appears to be like the linchpin of the whole scene. And 
I don't know if anyone ever watched the the TV series Mad Men. Um, it was about the advertising guys of Madison Avenue in the 50s and 60s. But this is a line from the main character in the very first episode. He's talking to a woman who says she's never been married because she's never been in love. Uh, and he says, the reason you haven't felt it is because it doesn't exist. What you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. His job is to think about how to associate something real and tangible like tights with something intangible and desirable like love or beauty or power or intellect. You want to be powerful? Buy this car. You want to be beautiful? Buy these earrings. You want to be included? Buy this phone. You want to be respected? Buy this book. Our economy would have fallen apart or had to change long ago if the advertisers hadn't worked out how to keep us buying things once we had everything we need. And it's really, really clever because we won't always need chairs or cars or earrings or phones. I have enough earrings, but I keep buying more. Um, we won't always need more stuff, but we will always need to feel like we matter that we are significant, that someone loves us. So, desire is the engine of consumerism. And it's not just our desire. There was a guy called René Girard and he talked about mimetic desire and that word comes from mimicking or copying. In other words, we learn what is desirable from those around us. Not just that we have like this simple desire for, um, I want that thing, but I want that thing because I know that other people want that thing. So on some level, we're basically all kind of two and a half, you know, like I didn't know I wanted it until that kid had it. So why am I telling you all this? Um, because perhaps the most important thing for us to know about consumerism is this. It's not about stuff. It's about desire. The logic of consumerism is to feed off desires that stuff can never satisfy. And in that sense, it's like a trap. So let's talk about um, slavery and let's go to Exodus. I think the story of God's people in Egypt is one of the best theological frameworks for understanding consumerism. And if you want to read more about this, there's a short paper by Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar who's written about this. And it's called The Liturgy of Abundance, The Myth of Scarcity, Consumerism and Religious Life. Uh, and so it's worth going and having a, a look at that if you're kind of interested to learn more. We read in Exodus 1 about the Israelites becoming enslaved in Egypt and they are under this brutal workload day in, day out. At one point in Exodus 5, when Moses attempts to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, Pharaoh doubles down. He doubles their workload. He gives them half the material they need to produce bricks uh, and it's awful. And Walter Brueggemann says our economy is a bit like Egypt. It's a system that on some level needs us to be slaves, to work hard, maybe all the time. That's one for another day, but also to consume endlessly. The system says you do not have what you need. It's a system of scarcity and it needs us to stay in that mindset of scarcity. I don't look good enough. My wardrobe isn't cool enough. My home is not beautiful enough. I am not enough. And so the slavery in Egypt gets worse and worse until eventually they escape. And when they're in the wilderness, waiting and wandering towards the promised land, 
they have two really significant experiences. The first is that God provides manna. They're hungry and so God provides this weird honey bread thing every day that appears on the ground each morning and they have to collect just enough for one day. And when they try and hoard it and collect two days worth, they find maggots in it. Except on the sixth day, when a supreme act of trust is asked. The day before the Sabbath, gather enough manna for two days and it will last. And so this is from Exodus 16, 22 to 30. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions. Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. That's about as clear a slogan for Sabbath lockdown as you're going to get that one. I, I like quite like that. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, Walter Brueggemann says they had never before received bread as a free gift that they couldn't control, predict, plan for or own. The meaning of this strange narrative is that the gifts of life are indeed given by a generous God. So first thing is manna. The second key thing is the Sabbath commandment, because after this defining experience of meeting scarcity with abundance and trust, Sabbath is instituted into a new covenant in the Ten Commandments and it's a fundamental expression of trust in God in a world that says you do not have enough uh, or, for, or for us more likely you are not enough and again Brueggemann says Sabbath means that there's enough bread that we don't have to hustle every day of our lives there's no record that Pharaoh ever took a day off People who think their lives consist of struggling to get more and more can never slow down because they won't ever have enough. So just to link these things up, the system of consumerism relies on you believing that your desire for um, acceptance or respect or love can be met by stuff. But it also relies on that desire never being satisfied. So you will keep buying things you don't really need. And that is a system of scarcity. And when God saw his people living in fear and scarcity, he gave them Sabbath. So what do we do when fear and scarcity take hold? We come in the opposite spirit. One of the most prophetic things that we can do in the face of consumerism is rest. To thank God for daily bread and trust will be okay. So um, Brueggemann talks about Sabbath as a kind of resistance. 
we resist um, this spirit of scarcity by saying I have enough and I am enough. Jesus has made it so. So here are some questions or things that you can um, use. At this point, you might want to just pause this video and just take five minutes and reflect on one of these uh, and just give yourself a pause to kind of think about what we've talked about so far. So part two. Here I want to turn our attention to one of the most important shifts that has occurred in society because of the rise in consumerism. Before the Industrial Revolution, it was uh, much more likely that you would buy things from people you knew or that you would be the one producing the food or making the clothes yourself. But as we became able to produce loads of stuff and just send it all over the country and then all over the world, the result was that we lost any sense of connection between the producer and the consumer. In fact, there are now so many stages and steps in the supply chain, it can be really hard to see what's going on. And there are two effects of this kind of split. The first is that when we can't really see or even imagine the people involved in making a product, the closest thing we can relate to is the company that sold it to us, the brand, the marketing. And of course, that's what advertising wants. If we saw that those pairs of shoes, that pair of shoes was just made in a factory by these 50 women and then put in boxes with thousands of others, it would be much harder to believe in the magic of a marketing campaign that say, uh, that says like these heels will make people respect us at work. So take this classic example, um, Nike. Nike do not sell shoes. They sell ideas, feelings, dreams. You might notice actually it's very, very rare for you to see the shoes that Nike actually produce. They are not the feature of the of the advert. Instead, uh, what you are seeing is something aspirational, something that evokes a deep desire within you to um, to, to connect with this brand. So what's being sold here is um, racial justice, um, standing up for what's right, uh, a deep sense of perseverance and competition. Um, the shoes don't need to be mentioned at all, because if we if we look at these adverts and think, yes, this is what I believe and this is what I want, we associate the brand with the shoe. And what becomes lost completely is the people that made that shoe. And so if we were shown um, an image of the workers, you know, on an average Tuesday lunchtime, you know, stitching um, labels into shoes on on that um factory line, it would be much harder for us to associate that shoe with these detached, intangible feelings. We would be, would be more likely to just look at it and think, it's just a shoe. So by obscuring the reality of the people that make the stuff, advertisers can almost like pretend that these goods appear out of nowhere. They are the manna our culture provides. They are the bread from heaven. Um, it's like, they, where do they come from, these products? These days they appear on our doorstep. Uh, we don't even have to go into a shop, uh, they're just there. The second thing that happens when we lose the connection between producer and consumer, when we can't see people or they, they are really far away, is that we lose responsibility as the consumer. If we had to watch someone produce our clothes in really awful conditions and then buy them directly, 
it would be much harder for us to think that's a bargain. I've bought um, clothes from ASOS um, quite a few times. A couple of years ago, the BBC were investigating working conditions in Turkey and found seven to eight year old children working 60 hour weeks and sewing boxer shorts that would be sold by ASOS. Now, ASOS have a code of conduct and this contravened that code of conduct, but it's because one of their approved suppliers subcontracted its work to smaller workshops across Istanbul. And it was in these unregulated areas that children were being forced into unemployment, sorry, into employment. Um, so ASOS could throw their hands in the air and say, look, look, we didn't know about this factory, but this is what happens when the links keep growing between the people making and the people buying, and eventually they're so far apart. So we've talked about consumerism being a system that demands that we want, but are never satisfied. And we've talked about Sabbath as being a gift that reminds us that we live in an abundant world. So the second way to see consumerism is as a system that breaks the link between production and consumption. And when that connection is broken, we come to think that stuff can do things that it can't, and we lose sight of the people who make the stuff. And Paul speaks directly to this when he develops language and theology around reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that God is reconciling all things to himself in Jesus, but, but also that we have been given that ministry of reconciliation. And that is such powerful language for describing the many ways that relationship is fractured in our society. And when it comes to consumerism, there is a really deep need for us to reconcile ourselves to those who facilitate the lives we lead by producing our stuff. We know that brokenness in the earth and in our economy comes through sin. So when that temple curtain tears, it's the beginning of all things being reconciled, including producers and consumers. So how do we live prophetically, pointing to a kingdom in which we are reconciled producer to consumer? Well, there's loads of answers to that. One thing you could do is start to research the companies that have the most ethical ratings when it comes to workers' conditions and rights. You might want to get a church subscription to Ethical Consumer, which has got loads of ratings in it um, for different products and is really helpful. Um, one thing I will say is that that takes time to shift our consumption patterns. So don't feel guilty if you can't change everything overnight. I think it's take, I'm, I'm going so slowly through the, through the things that I use. Um, I'm doing shampoo and then I'll do something else. And so, um, but bit by bit, we need to consume more ethically. So again, I'd encourage you at this point to take five minutes and pause um, and look at this invitation to consider some, some of the stuff in your house and the people who are involved in producing it. Um, I know with these sorts of things, now it's on video, it's really easy to just kind of race through it as if it's about the head knowledge. But if you stop now and actually sort of engage with this more personally, turn the video off and just spend five minutes in reflection, um, it will have been much more worthwhile all the listening. So take five minutes now and then come back. Okay, 
part three, where I ran out of imagination about how to name this. <laughs> um, the first two sections have been, I guess, fairly critical, highlighting much of what is negative about consumerism. So I want to end by pitching for a more positive way of relating to what we own. So uh, first, a question. Do you think that we should care more or less about the things that we buy and own? I want to suggest that we should care more. I understand the perspective that we all care too much about things and we need to become more detached from material goods. Um, I think that's usually how we would interpret um, many of Jesus' teachings about you know, for our hearts being where our treasure is or um, not to love money and possessions ahead of um, Jesus and God. Uh, and it's certainly the thinking, I think, behind hymns um, where you have lyrics like this. You might know it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I think there's this idea that we might grow more indifferent to the material world or to stuff the more holy we get but i think it might be the other way around i think that the more we participate in god's earth renewing agenda the more we care deeply about this world and the things of earth won't become dim they're going to become technicolor we will care much more about whether we are respecting this gift of the earth and all that it offers to us and you can sort of see glimpses of the glimpses of this in ideas about mindful eating that we slow right down and we really savour and enjoy our food instead of racing through it. Or I don't know if any of you have come across Marie Kondo, um, the Japanese phenomenon. She wrote a book called The Art of Tidying and she says we should um, only own things in our homes that truly spark joy, which uh, I did try for a while. I cleared out, I probably, I probably reduced my books by about um, four-fifths um, so I've reduced my stuff a lot by following her method of really considering in quite a lot of depth the things that I own. Once you get to the kitchen and you're holding a corkscrew and thinking, um, does this spark joy? The whole system slightly starts to fall apart. But I think her idea is um, that we need to be more careful about the things that we own and consider them more rather than just sort of um, take them into our lives. And I think that's absolutely right. Another um, book I've, I've read that I think really emphasises this, but from a more theological perspective, is this one, which I absolutely love, The Supper of the Lamb by Robert Farrah Capon. He is, says at the bottom, one of the funniest, wisest and unorthodox cookbooks ever written. He is um, an Episcopalian priest and he writes, I mean, it's a book of recipes, but really it's a book of theology. And there is a whole chapter... I kid you not, that is all about an onion. It is about 10 pages where you are invited to sit down and consider an onion and cut it. And um, so I'll read you. I'm just going to read you a little bit. I'm sorry. You're going to have to put up with me doing this because I love this book. First, he says you have to go and get an onion and you've got the onion and it's there. Um, he says... Uh, Admittedly, spending an hour in the society of an onion, that's how long he wants you to spend with the onion, may be something you've never done before. You feel perhaps a certain resistance to the project. Please don't. As I shall show later, a number of highly profitable members of the race have undertaken it before you. Onions are excellent company. So 
I mean, what he's really saying is you've probably never spent much time considering or looking at or cutting or smelling or touching an onion. But once he begins to do it, he reflects sort of theologically on this extraordinary thing that an onion is. And um, and it's amazing. So at the end of this chapter, he says, um, I'm going to give you my summation of, of my case for paying attention to things. Man's real work is to look at the things of the world and to love them for what they are. That is, after all, what God does. And man was not made in God's image for nothing. So maybe you want to, after this, spend an hour in the company of an onion. Or maybe not. That's also OK. So this author says, um, we live today in a world of ever more stuff, what sometimes seems like a deluge of goods and shopping. And we tend to assume that this has two results, that we are more superficial and that we are more materialistic. Our relationship to things coming at the expense of our relationships to people. But what he actually goes on to say is that um, it's a cliche, potentially, that we haven't actually um, we haven't really put those assumptions to the test. So he says, by the time you finish this book, you will discover that in many ways the opposite is true. That possessions often remain profound and usually the closer our relationships are with objects, the closer our relationships are with people. And I think that's a very different idea to what we usually hear about consumerism, which is almost kind of we should have less and less and less and we should care less and less and less. I think what these things are suggesting is that um, we may need to consume fewer things, but we should care far more about the things we have. And maybe the things that we own um, become more meaningful to us because we associate them with our relationships to people or to places or to memories. And the more meaningful these things are, the more we will care about them. So we already talked in part one about how consumerism works by associating stuff with our desires, but not satisfying that desire. In fact, we often get less and less satisfaction from these goods the longer time goes on. And in 1871, a guy called William Stanley Jeevans published his theory of political economy. And he said that the value of stuff doesn't depend on how much it costs to make, but on how much people want it. And that this kind of desire isn't fixed, it's marginal. In other words, each additional portion of a thing is less desirable. So this makes sense when we think about cake. We really like the first slice of cake. We quite like the second slice of cake. By the third slice, we want a bath. Um, and that's true of stuff as well. It's called the law of diminishing returns. Often the, the more we have of something, the less we value it. But in the kingdom economy, I think the opposite is true, that the more we pay attention to and love um, and are careful of these things that we own, the more we value them. And that slows down our consumption and it, take, it helps us take a kind of more ethical approach to things. 
and uh, you may well have seen the um, the wallpaper prints of a guy called William Morris who um, was writing and an artist in the 19th century and one of the things he said um, and I'm going to misquote now but have nothing in your houses that you do not consider to be either um, functional or beautiful in other words um, you either think it's really beautiful and it's adding a lot of pleasure to your life or um, you know that it's really useful to you, it's genuinely useful and you, and you use it. And um, I think that ethic speaks to us a little bit. I, I mean, I wonder what would happen if we looked around our houses and, and picked things up and said, are you, are you beautiful or useful? How many things would remain? At this point, I also just have to tell you that I once went into one of these kind of trinket shops that has loads of stuff that probably wouldn't be considered either beautiful or useful, but just loads of just fraffy things. And um, I saw a cushion with that quote by William Morris on it. And I think it was like the most ironic thing I'd ever seen because this cushion was like, it was about that big and really wide. So it clearly wasn't a useful cushion. Um, and it was not beautiful. I mean, maybe you look at it and you see something that I don't see. But the irony of having that quote on a cushion that was, to me, entirely useless and totally ugly, that irony was not lost on me. We've all seen the mountains of waste that we contribute to. And in fact, the earliest uses of the word consume mean to destroy, to use up, to waste, to exhaust. And that's also why um, the wasting disease or tuberculosis was called consumption. I think it's much harder to waste when you care more, when you are being careful. And so um, in summary for this third part, what I want to advocate is that we don't care less about the stuff we own, we care much more. So here are again a few ideas for how you can pause and reflect at the end here. Um, and this time it's about trying to recognise from your own experience the difference between the things that you own that that really mean something to you. Um, like that, that book, the, the Comfort of Things, where it said many of our possessions actually are about our connection to people. Are, are, is there something in, that you could look at um, that really captures that sense of this thing is something that I that makes me think of a person, a memory, a place. And then maybe something that feels like it, it, it is the epitome of like wanting something, getting it, and then instantly thinking, why did I do that? I don't care about it anymore. 